Movements are meant to change things. For the better. Not for the worse. This is the story of a movement that changed things for the better. And then changed things again. This time for the worse. The lawyers' movement in Pakistan started for the restoration of democracy, but ended up threatening a democratically elected government. It fought for accountability, but gave immense amounts of unchecked power to lawyers and judges across the country. So how does it happen? How does the movement striving for change become its very enemy? Was it the lack of long-term goals? Unnecessary politics? Or something completely different? This is The Great Betrayal, where we navigate through the movement to find all the answers. In early 2007, General Pervez Musharraf's regime looked in perfect order. His allies were in power across the country, the opposition was in complete disarray, the military was squarely behind him, and the international community backed him because of the ongoing war against terrorism. But there was a small problem. Chief Justice of Pakistan, Justice of the Jodhri, was becoming a little too active for the regime's comfort. He had reversed the privatization of a steel mill and was picking up many politically and financially sensitive cases. In a year when Musharraf himself faced presidential re-election and the parliamentary term for his allies was coming to an end, trouble in the court was the last thing he wanted. So in March 2007, he suspended Justice Chaudhry and sent a reference against him to the Supreme Judicial Council for his sacking. He thought that he had removed the last possible threat to his order. Unwittingly, though, he had stirred all the half-asleep forces of change that would signal the beginning of his end. Musharraf would do whatever he could to stay on top of the system. For one, he gave clear instructions to all and sundry that he would not brook Justice Chaudhry's return to the top court. And for another, he cracked down on lawyers and political activists who would come out in thousands in all major cities on a daily basis to demand Justice Chaudhry's restoration. I spoke to Foreman Christian College Lahore's assistant professor Kalander Maimon, who was a young academic at the time and took an active part in the movement for the restoration of Justice Chaudhry. So it would always start with us shouting slogans, then throwing a few uh, rocks, uh, trying to break the barrier to release the um, Iftikhar Singh from his house arrest. And then they would start with the water cannon, then they'll go into tear gas, and then they'll come in lati charge, then they'll pick up 100 people and release them after one day. I also spoke with Hassan Javid, who was an associate professor at the Lahore University of Management Sciences and was then a student of politics in Lahore. I mean, the tremendous amount of repression that was unleashed by the state in, in response to the movement, the crackdown on lawyers, yes, but also academics, journalists, students, and other activists, um, hundreds if not thousands of whom were jailed. Uh, I myself was a student at the time. Many, many people I know were had to go into hiding or were arrested. Some of my professors were arrested. The most lethal use of force in this regard took place on 12th May 2007. 
Mutahida Qaumi Movement, or MQM, a party with a violent history, unleashed a reign of terror on the crowds getting together to welcome Justice Chaudhary in Karachi. The result? There were dead bodies on the streets of Karachi, with party flags clutched in their hands and bloody wounds on their chests. At the end of the day, 48 were killed and dozens were wounded. But Justice Chaudhary's support did not wane. And in July 2007, the Supreme Court ruled that his suspension was illegal and that the reference filed for his sacking had no legal standing. Musharraf had achieved the opposite of what he had intended. He now faced a hostile judiciary, a reinvigorated opposition whose leaders were threatening to get back from exile, and a highly tense situation on the streets where people were agitating about everything from the shortage of electricity to the unavailability of wheat flour. And the disorder kept on spreading. Soon, it reached the heart of the federal capital, Islamabad, where radical religious students and teachers had started to impose their diktat upon ordinary citizens. The ensuing clashes between the state and the heavily armed militants based in a mosque made a fragile situation perilous. The suicide bombings that started across Pakistan in the wake of this confrontation made Pakistan's very existence uncertain. Could a judiciary newly rejuvenated by massive public support turn the tide of disorder to a new order? Let's find out. In October 2007, Musharraf was making last-ditch efforts to regain control. That month, he was re-elected as the president of Pakistan in extremely controversial circumstances. The elected forums that voted for him had already reached the end of their tenure. The constitution did not allow the election of a military officer as president, and the people had grown tired of his eight years long autocratic rule. But to everyone's surprise, the Supreme Court did not stop him. Instead, the top court allowed him to contest the election without shedding his military uniform. The lawyers in the opposition also legitimized his election by putting up candidates against him, and public protests had also started to become less frequent. Musharraf seemed to have weathered the storm, but he wasn't aware of what was coming next. He still feared that a judiciary headed by a man who had no love lost for him would not endorse his election. He dreaded that the parties of two former prime ministers, Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif, who had come back to Pakistan just in time for the upcoming parliamentary election, could outvote his supporters. And he apprehended being outmaneuvered by the twin monsters of rising religious terrorism and a declining economy. So he decided to create a new order. On November 3, 2007, he imposed a state of emergency and promulgated a new constitutional order, outlawing political activities, suspending fundamental rights, and placing strict curbs on the independence of the judiciary. Justice Chaudhary and seven judges of the Supreme Court ruled that the state of emergency was unconstitutional, so Musharraf had them all arrested. He then invited judges of his own choosing to take oath under his new constitutional order. All those who were not asked to take oath stood automatically sacked, including Iftikhar Chaudhary. The order was restored, but it came at the expense of the rule of law. 
And this dichotomy would soon spill on the streets as another round of the movement for the restoration of judiciary immediately followed the imposition of the emergency. Although the movement ended up restoring Justice Chaudhry and all the other 60-odd judges sent home by Musharraf, the jury is still out on whether this helped or hampered the rule of law. This second phase for the restoration of judiciary split almost down the middle right after it started. The lawyers' associations, former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif's party, Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, or PMLN, and Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf, or PTI, the party headed by the incumbent Prime Minister Imran Khan, demanded Musharraf's resignation, an immediate restoration of the sacked judges, and a parliamentary election under a neutral administration. Without these conditions, they refused to take part in the parliamentary election scheduled for early January 2008. On the other hand, Benazir Bhutto's Pakistan People's Party, or PPP, decided to take part in the elections while simultaneously pushing for Musharraf's ouster and the judges' restoration. A few days later, Bhutto was able to convince Sharif to participate in the election as well. While the two campaigned vigorously across Pakistan, the lawyers and their political supporters would take out their own rallies and hold their own gatherings. As this turmoil went on, the country was also reeling under terrorism. Various militant groups became so powerful in the northwest of the country that they set up their own administrations and courts there. Most of them had also joined hands and created what subsequently became known as Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan, or TTP. Their increasing sphere of activities necessitated that the military left Musharraf to tackle his own political and judicial troubles. And so, in late November 2007, Musharraf had to relinquish his post as the army chief. But the disorder continued to spread far and wide. The most glaring instance of the administrative chaos unfolded in Rawalpindi, only miles from the federal capital. Militants belonging to TTP assassinated Bhutto and several of her supporters at the end of an election rally. For the next few days, many parts of the country were practically under the control of mobs. They blocked highway traffic, torched vehicles, destroyed public and private properties, and took out spontaneous and aggressive protests. Pakistan's unraveling was becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. The mayhem was so widespread that the government had to postpone parliamentary elections for 40 days. If Musharraf and his political allies ever harbored any hopes of winning the election, the public mood post Bhutto's assassination had put paid to it. Justice Chaudhry and other arrested judges, too, seemed to have been forgotten. But this was temporary. In March 2008, a new government finally came to power. It was headed by PPP with PMLN as its coalition partner. Immediately after his election, the new Prime Minister, Yusuf Raza Gilani, ordered the release of the arrested judges and promised to restore them as early as the law and order permitted. But this did not satisfy the lawyers and their political allies. They wanted the judges restored immediately. They also wanted Musharraf tried for high treason for imposing a state of emergency. In June 2008, they started a long march from various parts of the country and sat in protest the whole day in front of the Parliament House in Islamabad. The government gave them a sympathetic hearing, but argued that it could not restore the judges without first finding a constitutional way to get rid of those who were serving in their places. It also stated that it could not arrest and try Musharraf as long as he was the president of the country. But the agitators were not convinced. 
and they were soon joined by PMLN, which left the nascent coalition government and joined the demand for Musharraf's trial and the judge's restoration. Deprived of its parliamentary majority, the government was left to seek the support of two pro-Musharraf parties in order to stay in power. And this further tarnished its image amongst the protesters who saw it as an act of hideous political compromise. Musharraf, once again, seemed to have gained an upper hand. But then, a miracle happened. As a result of many resolutions passed in various legislative forms for Musharraf's impeachment, the ruling PPP was able to pressurize him into resigning. And so, on 18th August 2008, he finally did. His autocratic order had finally collapsed. And the only consolation he possibly had was that his nemesis, Justice Chaudhary, was still in a judicial wilderness. The PPP government had developed strong misgivings about him given his ostensible connections with PMLN. But backed by lawyers and other political parties, PMLN continued to agitate his cause and finally forced the government to reinstate him and other judges in March 2009. With his return and the ousting of Musharraf, the lawyers' movement had finally attained its twin goals. I wish I could say that it all ended here. That political order and the rule of law finally forged a partnership and everyone lived happily ever after. But that, sadly, would be untrue. Yeah, we were, we were uh, disappointed once the, uh, you know, in the second, when the, when the deal was made and the second long march was called off and, you know, and, and, and kind of we won a hollow victory uh, in that, you know, we got a system without the system changing and power stayed as it was and just went behind the curtain. The democratic dispensation and the superior judiciary soon indulged in a war of attrition, which the weak government was ill-set to win. Justice Chaudhary, on the other hand, was on a mission to create daily headlines which fed into his already high popularity. He took thousands of judicial notices on administrative matters that lay beyond even the widest judicial scope possible, hauled ministers and government servants to his court and berated them publicly over the slightest of excuses. And he purged the courts of hundreds of judges who had not supported him during his suspension, replacing them with his loyalists. He took up one politically important case after the other and on a daily basis, criticized the government for its handling of the economy, law and order, corruption, and even foreign policy. The highest point in his judicial activism came about when he started hearing a case against Pakistan's ambassador to the United States over an alleged memo in which the PPP government had reportedly sought the American support against the military's meddling in power. The case eventually came to nothing, but it hurt PPP's public image very badly. The other case proved even more hurting for the government. Justice Chaudhary took up a dormant corruption reference against PPP's chairperson, Asif Ali Zardari, who was the president of Pakistan at the time, and directed Prime Minister Yusuf Raza Gilani to let a Swiss court try Zardari. But Gilani refused. So Justice Chaudhary not only deposed him as Prime Minister, but also unseated him from the parliament and barred him from taking part in the election for the next five years. The lawyers, in the meanwhile, had become too powerful for any institution of the state to be able to regulate their work. They would go on strike for days on whim, beat up government officials when and where they wanted, and even clash with judges when they did not like their rulings. 
for most legal observers, Pakistan was in the grip of a judicial dictatorship. For others, it did represent some sort of an order, though not of a democratic type. So why did the movement for the rule of law and judicial order turn into its very opposite? Ultimately, the lawyers' movement was also a product of the broader social and political context uh, out of which it emerged. So on the one hand, it was uh, uh, was a progressive movement in the sense that it was was explicitly anti-dictatorship and explicitly pro-democracy. I mean, what started out as a demand for the reinstatement of the chief justice morphed into a broader demand for, for a restoration of democracy in Pakistan. And in that sense, it was unequivocally, I think, a good thing. However, uh, as I've often felt myself and as other people have looked at the movement point out, its demands didn't really go any deeper than that, even once it was aligned with political parties. I mean, this wasn't a kind of radical movement that was uh, trying to work towards a fundamentally different conception of the relationship between state and citizen. It wasn't a movement that was calling for fundamental reform of the system. It was calling for democracy in the broadest possible sense. When it started out, the lawyers' movement looked like an outside force trying to usher in changes in a broken system. The reason we committed to it was that it was at the beginning led by a new new actors and leaders who weren't your traditional leaders and and you know and and so there was a lot of hope that some new political act, actors could enter. But then it got entangled in partisan politics, institutional infighting and the selfish lust for power, causing it to betray everyone and everything that it once stood for. 